to be back here again. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's my pleasure to have this opportunity uh, to speak again uh, at 4.30. Um, I'm just going to preface this talk with uh, two uh, kind of things that I think you should be aware of. Um, the first of them is I actually neglected to uh, put some of the Bible verses in there. And so you're going to have to follow along with me in Hebrews, uh, or otherwise you're going to have to have a good memory. Um, and the other thing is actually there really aren't many points to my sermon. Uh, actually, they're, they're going to be questions for us, questions that I hope that you think about and questions that I hope you reflect on as we go through the passage together. Uh, as we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, let us pause for prayer. Whoops. Uh, Lord and Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we open your word today, uh, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us, uh, and that we would learn more about who you are and what you've done for us. Uh, Father, we pray that our hearts would be open, our eyes would be open, that our ears would be open to what you have to say to us. Uh, Father, we pray that, uh, yeah, we would truly... Uh, be uh, longing for you and for the promises that you offer. Help me to speak through your word today. Help me to speak clearly. Uh, Lord, make it very clear to this congregation when I'm speaking something that is wrong. And so I pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, let's see if we can get this working. Okay. Right. Promises. I think promises are one of the greatest motivators for human behavior that exists in today's society. In 2013, I enrolled in the University of Sydney, right? I voluntarily underwent years of toil, years of pain, right? And I graduated with thousands upon thousands of dollars of hex debt, all for this. No, it is not a piece of paper. It's a promise. It's a promise of a career. It's the promise of opportunity. It is the promise of a stable income and everything that that brings to you, right? So promises, not only do they help us wake up to work in the morning, promises actually have the power to uproot our entire lives. Most of you might, um, uh, most of you might relate to the typical Asian immigrant story. My dad used to live in Hong Kong, and he built a job there. He had a career, a status, and he'd made progress there, but he gave all that up. Why? For a promise, a promise of a better life here in Australia. Not, not exactly for himself, but for his family. He's always been a family man, you see. Promises have the power to uproot our entire lives. And yet, if you ever received an email from the Prince of Nigeria or other promises of quick money, you might realize that you need to be careful, right? Because not only are promises enticing, some of them are empty, some of them are hollow, some of them are dangerous. We're going to be looking at promises today, and I want to look at what Hebrews chapter 8 is saying about promises. I want to look at, actually, this idea of what are the things that are promising what we want in life. What are the things that you think are worth sacrificing for in life, right? What kind of promises are shaping your behavior at this very moment? That's the things that I'm looking for. Now, first question then is, are we taking Jesus seriously? Let's read chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. Are we taking him seriously? 
Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human being. Right? It's this expression that Jesus is the real deal. Okay? He's not some fanciful fiction. He's not theory. He's real. And the question then is, are you taking him seriously? Uh, I think I was just introduced as a high school teacher. My kids sometimes don't take me seriously at all. My kids, uh, during an evacuation drill, right, they are chaotic. There is no way that I can mark off all these names and have them uh, repeat them back to me because they're all having their own conversations everywhere outside running around in someone else's class and not mine. One day, um, one of my colleagues told me, one day our school had a lockdown. It was not a drill. Three students had entered into our school looking for a fight. And one of our students didn't take it very seriously. Not only did she have her phone out, she texted her mom and said, there's an active shooter at our school. Her mom took it very seriously. She called the police. The police took it very seriously. They came with a full squadron ready to take out an active shooter. Can you imagine what that's like? And the ambulance, they took it seriously. They sent two ambulances down, all ready to take victims to hospital. Are you taking it seriously? Because I think the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying that what Jesus is offering you is worth taking seriously. It is worth giving up your lives for. And for the Jews in this passage, it was worth giving up their religious identity, their cultural identity, and all the social status that they had gained as Jews, and give it all up to follow Jesus. Are you taking Jesus that seriously? Or are you afraid? Are you afraid to let go? We're like drowned sailors holding dearly on to whatever's going to keep us afloat, too afraid to actually let go, reach our hands out and grab onto someone who's actually going to take us out of that situation. Are you afraid of letting go of what you have to take hold of the promises that Jesus is offering you? Are you afraid? You know, uh, for most of us, who've come here to Australia in, in the search for a better life, I think most of us have found it. We have free schooling, Medicare, pension, various among other things. We have a, a lot better than other countries out there. And yet for some, for some, that would not be true. Mainly refugees. Many of them would reach out for the same promise of a better life that we did, Many of them would sell all that they had, and they gambled it on a boat, an overcrowded boat in the ocean, uh, open oceans, right? And if they survived, this is what we promised them. You will never settle here in Australia. They gambled their entire lives on an empty promise, and they didn't even know it. If you want me to take Jesus seriously, you're going to have to tell me why. These promises aren't empty because either I'm going to have to be desperate or you're going to have to give me a really good reason. 
Well, is there a really good reason? Is there a reason good enough for me to give up my entire life to follow Jesus? I think from the Hebrew perspective, from the Jewish perspective, the answer is actually no. See, in the Jewish eyes, Christianity was the far inferior religion. It was a lot lower. It was a lot worse, actually, because in, in, in Judaism, you could literally smell your salvation. That's a weird thing for someone to say. You could literally smell your salvation. See, in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 31, they removed the fat, and the priest would burn it on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In this way, the priest would make atonement for them, and they would be forgiven, right? You offered your sacrifice to the priest. The priest would burn it on the altar, and as the smoke rose to heaven, and you smelled the smell of burning fat, it's a very familiar smell. I think you know it. It's like someone plunked a KFC right in the middle of the Israelite camp. You could not miss it as you walked by. You smelt that really good smell of burning fat, and you knew, right, because it was a symbol to you that God accepted your sacrifice, right, that he had forgiven you, and actually that you were pleasing to him once again. You were a pleasing smell to him once again. That's what you had in Judaism. In Christianity, You had none of that. You had no sacrifices. You didn't even have a priest to offer that sacrifice to. And worse yet, you didn't even have a temple to worship at. No sacrifice, no priest, no temple. You were the mockery of the ancient world. You had nothing. And you're telling me to take Jesus seriously. You're telling me to put my faith in Jesus. Well, we've got nothing here in Christianity. I mean, has it ever actually bothered you how plain our church services are? Has it ever actually bothered you that our church services are really plain? I mean, have a look around you. It's not a really nice sort of hall. It's just a plain, old, ordinary hall that we meet at. We have neither the instances of Eastern mysticism, nor do we have the high robes of Eastern Catholicism. We have no giant statues in Buddhism, and we have not the intricate architecture of Islam. We meet in this hall where sometimes our modern worship music doesn't sound very different from the world around us, right? There's nothing too fancy about what we do here. I'm not very fancy myself. The only thing fancy about me is my clothes. We have no vaulted ceilings. We have no pictures of Jesus hanging around. It is plain and it is ordinary. If you want me to believe in the promises of Jesus, show me something to believe in. But we have none of these things. I think the book uh, of Hebrews is trying to argue, actually, that's a good thing for us. The fact that we don't have any of these things, that we're not distracted by all these visual displays, these rituals, actually I think is a good thing. What I mean to say is this. I think from an observing point of view that the more visible the sign of a religions are, they actually show us how desperate the worshippers will be. Right? The more the signs of the religion are shown the more desperate its worshippers are. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing, right? The idea is 
God is far away, okay? He is in the spiritual realm, away from us normally. And to enter into that divine presence, you had to meet certain requirements. That's quite simple. That's basic logic. And yet, the further God was away, the more elaborate those rituals had to become, right? To get into the divine presence of God, if your God was very far away from you, then you had to do a lot of stuff to get there. Let me give you an example. Eastern spiritualism. They, they believe that the spirits are all around us. It's not hard to get to them. It's everywhere. For them, right, they, earned, they burnt very simple offerings, right? You didn't have to wear anything special. You didn't need a priest to do it for you. You could do it yourself, and you could make your offerings at home in a little metal can. Yet, if you take our Muslim neighbors, their sacrifice was one where their entire lives were given to pure holiness and cleanliness. They would perform ritualistic washing before they entered buildings, before they went to the mosque, after they ate, and before they went to the toilet and that kind of stuff. They took off their sandals before they walked into their holy, high-vaulted mosques, where the language of God was so divine, it could only be recited in Arabic. God was far from them, and you needed to go far to get to where he was. And yet, even then, sometimes that was not enough. Some of them would have to take the pilgrimage all the way to Mecca, to the Hajj, to the Holy Lands, to enter the divine presence of their God. They were desperate. We, too, were once desperate because Christianity is founded on the history and the scriptures of the Jewish people. We, too, went through these rituals of circumcision, of washing, of burnt sacrifices constantly. And yet what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying to us is actually we are desperate no longer. There's a solution out there. There is a solution so good that all the things that we thought we needed to have to get to God, we don't need them anymore. We do not need them anymore. Let's just read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 to 5. Every priest, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. The argument that the writer would later say is that Jesus is offering us such a perfect and complete sacrifice, they would never have to sacrifice anything ever again. That was done, finished, never to be repeated. That's why we don't have sacrifices in Christianity. Verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. I wonder if sometimes you would think, man, life would be so much easier if Jesus were like right there next to me, serving by my side, serving me. And yet the honest truth is actually, it's because Jesus is serving you that he's not here on earth. He's serving you in the one place where it really matters. He's serving you in heaven. He's gone to a place that no priest has ever gone before. And if you want to enter into the presence of the divine, well, here's someone who's entered into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's where he sits. 
And then in verse 5, it says, they serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. It's a copy, it's a shadow. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Look, you can keep your St. Peter's Basilicas. You can keep that. You can keep your Sistine Chapels. You can keep your Notre Dame Cathedrals, beautiful as they are. For us, they are nothing but toys, models, replicas. Compared to the real thing, they aren't very much at all. See, for us, Jesus serves in a heavenly temple, one where God has built it by his own hands. Jesus serves in a heavenly temple. You'll hear more about that uh, in a couple of weeks, I think. No, today I want to focus on the promise that is offered us in verse 6. Let us read. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he mediates is better uh, or is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises, right? The work that he does is better. How much better is it? It's as better as the new covenant is from the old covenant. Uh, Now, when I go shopping, as any good Asian would know, uh, you look out for the bargains, Right? You look out for the sales, you look out for the discounts, and um, uh, if you give me a good enough bargain, good enough discount, a good enough sale, I might even buy something, <laughs> my dad might <laughs> not be too happy about this, but I might even buy something that I don't need. You give me a good enough sale, I might buy something I don't need. And yet, on the other hand, if I did need something, but it wasn't on sale, or it was really meager and small, like this one, then I might actually choose not to buy it then, right? I might choose to wait a little bit later. Maybe it'll get cheaper later, right? Sometimes I might even not even go there. I might go somewhere else to find it, somewhere else where I can buy it for cheaper, for better, right? If you want me to believe in the promises of Jesus, show me that it's better. Show me that it's worth everything to follow. Show me, right, that it is something that I need to put my faith in and will uproot everything in my life. Show me that it's better. Well, let's have a look from verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty big thing, actually, to replace an entire covenant Okay, it's a pretty big thing. Um, If your headlight breaks in your car, you do not replace the car. You replace the headlights. If your tires are worn, you do not replace the car. You replace the tires. And yet, what do we read in verse 8? But God found fault with the people, and he said, replace the people. That's not what he said, is it? Let's have a read of what it really says. 
But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. He is mercifully committed to his people here, right? He is so committed to the people that when they are the problem, when they're at fault, he doesn't replace them, he replaces the covenant. And that's big because it shows to us that we've got a big problem in here that needs solving. You know, human greed and selfishness has kind of gone rampant in consumer society, right? It makes exploiting workers sound pretty good. We get cheap clothes. That's a great idea. It makes toxic pollution sound like a good business opportunity. What I want to actually focus on today is actually this problem of meat. Really, our problem for our love of meat. Now, don't get me wrong, I love my meat. Uh, But we have a member of our small group uh, who's actually a vegetarian. And she's been encouraging us actually to eat less meat. Um, Her name's Chloe, just, just if you're wondering. She's been encouraging us to eat less meat. And this is what I found out. Um, let's try this first. Can you please raise your hand for me if you've a- uh, eaten grain-fed cattle before? Grain-fed cattle. Just raise your hand if you think you've eaten some grain-fed cattle. Some of us, some of us. You know, the, the, the honest truth is actually most of our hands should actually be up. Most of our hands should actually be up because if cows ate grass, and they can, right, your cartoons weren't wrong in that sense. You, they can eat grass. You know, but the problem is, it turns their fat yellow. And we don't like yellow fat. So if you've, you've, if you've eaten grain-fed cattle before, then you know it because you've got white fat on your cow, on your beef. You know it because it's white. right? And, and get this right. It takes a lot of land to raise up cattle. You've got to put them somewhere. That's going to take up a lot of land. All right, we're happy with that. But you know what they have to do to feed them grain? They have to take another block of land. Not for people to live on, right? No. They use billions of liters of water. Not for people to drink. They use it to grow wheat. Not so that people can eat it, but so that they can feed cows to turn their fat from yellow to white, and then our parents tell us to cut off the fat because it's unhealthy. I mean, seriously, did no one think that through? Look, we don't have problems of global hunger. We actually don't have problems of unsafe water to drink. We don't have problems of climate change. We have a problem with ourselves. With all those things, they're just symptoms of our greed and our selfishness in this world. They're just symptoms. There is something deeply wrong inside of us, something that the old covenant could not fix. And so in verse 9, what do we read? The new covenant, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, and that is a good thing. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant, and it's good because it's founded on better promises. Let me go through and read it out for you, and then we'll go through the promises that are better. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, one of the problems with the Old Testament was it was very hard to remain faithful to God. Your hearts kept turning away from Him, that your hearts keep wanting something else. And so, they could not remain faithful to God because their hearts wouldn't let them. The new, pro- uh, new covenant offers us this promise. The law is not going to be placed on stone. It's not going to be inscribed on the Ten Commandments. No, they're going to be inscribed on your minds, and they're going to be inscribed in your hearts. Finally, there is a solution to what is going on inside of here. In the Old Covenant, God rejected the people. He rejected the people because they were unfaithful. That's quite a scary prospect of being rejected, trying very hard to get close to God, and yet it wasn't good enough. In the New Covenant, God's going to declare, I will be your God, and they will be my people. He is not going to reject us anymore. He is going to keep us, despite our failures to keep the Old Covenant. Of the New Covenant, we see that everyone will know the Lord. And this was a particularly uh, challenging aspect for the Jews because they were constantly burdened by the fear that someone didn't know God, right, and they would break one of the covenants. You know, they used to tie little scrolls up and tie them onto their doorposts and they used to tie them and put them into their clothes and made sure that people knew the Scriptures well because if someone didn't know the Lord and they violated the covenant, then all of these curses would go upon them. And yet for us, we are reassured that everyone will know the Lord. And yet, here's perhaps my most encouraging one. In the Old Testament, the burnt sacrifices were a constant reminder that they failed, actually, to keep the covenant. They failed in all of their aspects to remain faithful to God. And yet, in the new covenant, our wickedness and our sins will be remembered no more. These are truly much better promises. There's so much better promises that in verse 13, this is what the writer says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Right? The promises of Jesus make the old covenant look like a floppy disk. I don't know if you remember these. I mean, that's the point, right? They're gone. They're no more. That's what the old covenant is like. When you bring in the new covenant, boom. Like, what, what are you basing your life off? Right? What kind of promises are shaping your life at the moment? What kind of choices are you making at life right now? What are you sacrificing to get what you want out of life at the moment? Right? Because are you taking the promises that Jesus is offering you seriously? Are you taking Jesus seriously in everything that he has to promise because promises change our behavior. Have you ever looked at your behavior and go, 
do they look like ones which are based off the promises of Jesus? For many of us, I think we are often tempted, actually, to find uh, fulfillment, joy, wealth elsewhere apart from Jesus. Many of us are distracted, perhaps, from our God. Many of us, we feel, uh, I guess, drifting and far away from God. And can I just say, I'm right there with you, right? These are the kinds of constant feelings that we go through of falling away from our God or finding ourselves drifting further and further away. We find ourselves tempted by the things that the world has to offer because they're right there in front of us. We can see them. And yet the promises of God, they look distant. In fact, the Bible is honest with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then eat all that you want to eat, drink all that you want to eat, and, sorry, drink all that you want to drink, and enjoy everything that you want to enjoy, because when you die, there will be no other chance to do that. And yet, Jesus is promising us a life after death. And by doing so, he's made those promises that the world gives us obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Are you taking Jesus seriously? I, I want to finish, actually, um, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, I want you to think then, actually, how does that change your behavior? And I want to go through this uh, analogy. I want you to think about your life, the car of your life, where you are taking this journey and you're in this car, right? And at some point uh, in your life, in the car of your life, you've invited Jesus into your life. You've invited him in. And I want to ask you, where have you put him? Where is Jesus in the car of your life? Is he, is he in the boot of your car? Right? And he's someone you've stashed away and you bring him out on Sundays and, ah, oh, hello, Jesus, yes, and bring him out everywhere. And then when church is over, you're like, get back in there, and you slam the boot. And then when people look at your lives on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, they can't see him because you've put him in the boot. No, 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 no. Jesus is an honored guest. Jesus is someone in the car. Okay, well, is he in the back seat then? You know, you're going to drive him around certain places, but, you know, he doesn't really get a choice of what, where you go. No, 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 no. Jesus is an honored guest. An honored guest. Now, I'm just going to pause. I'm just going to ask, who thinks they know where I'm going to end with this story? You just raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to be brave. Raise your hand if you think you know where I'm going to end at the end of the story. Yeah? Okay, a couple of brave people. Thank you, brave people. But you're wrong. I'm going to ask that you keep your ears open and listening to where this ends. Okay. He's not in the back seat. Okay, where is he? He's in the front seat, the front passenger seat. You know, you give him control over the air conditioning, you give him control over the music. You know, he makes good choices. Sometimes you get him to nap for you and you have conversations. He takes you about places in life. No, 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 no. Jesus is more important than a guest. He's actually driving my car at the moment. He's the one on the front wheel. He makes the choices in life. Well, Okay, if he's in the front seat of your car, then I've got two more questions for you. The first one is, is Jesus your Uber driver? 
Oh, I want to go over here. I want to go to rich land, and I want to get over there. And, oh, yes, Jesus, could you pick me up by three and make sure I'm married by 21? Is that the kind of person that you treat Jesus as? A place, a, a person who is going to get you to where you want to go? No, 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 no. Surely he makes better choices than that. Okay, final question then. Are you, are you a backseat driver? You come to an intersection, you, turn, you want to turn left, Jesus turns right. What are you doing, Jesus? I'm going down the path of forgiveness. I don't want to go down the path of forgiveness. You come to another intersection, you tur- turn left or turn right. You want to turn left. Jesus turns right. What are you doing, Jesus? I'm taking you down the path of generosity. I don't want to be generous. Are we sometimes like that? Sometimes we grumble, sometimes we complain about the places that Jesus takes us in life. There's another intersection. The lights are green. Jesus is going forward. And out of nowhere, another car comes and crashes into yours. At first, you're angry. You're angry that someone else would crash into your car. It was their fault. But then you get a little worried get a little worried. You're wondering about your insurance and how that's going to work out and about that, that car of yours. And then, and then you, you start to get angry again because you realize, actually, that the car of your life has come to an end. There's no more left turns, no more right turns. You're not going to get any more places that you want to get to because it's over. And you get angry at Jesus. You get angry at Jesus because that's the very reason, right, you knew that was going to happen. If he did these things, if he took over your life, you knew that's where Jesus was going to take you. You knew, actually, right, that when Jesus took you all these places, this was where you're going to end up. And then you realize when Jesus turns around and his body is broken, and there's blood all over him because he took the hit for you. And when he hugs you, you realize actually his blood covers you more than any insurance ever would. And you realize that it was right to put Jesus in the driving seat of your car and making the choices in life and that his goodness was going to leave you home. Those are the promises of Jesus. Are you going to take him seriously? Let us pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much that you have committed yourselves to humans. Uh, even though we fail, Lord, we thank you that you love us anyway. Uh, Father, we pray that we would continually each day seek you, seek to know you more, and seek to live our lives worthy of what you've given to us. Uh, Father, help us to continue reflecting on the goodness, the good things in life that you give us. Each day, each morning, new mercies. Uh, Father, help us to trust in you. Even though we can't see these things so clearly, help us to trust in the things that you offer us in Jesus. In your son's name I do pray. Amen.